My name is Ann Kennigsmark, and I'm an English teacher, a writer, and a former journalist. And now I am your host for Cocktail Party Takeaways, a podcast for anyone with regrets, but not deep ones, about the books they slept through in high school. A ruler seeks to cure his city of a dire and deadly plague. Little does he know he is the cause of their misery. Like some awful twist on Sleeping Beauty, this tragic king must wake to the truth in order to restore peace and health to the kingdom. Do you believe in fate, destiny? What are some of the ways our fates, our futures can be predicted? You're thinking about crystal balls or tarot cards, or maybe those oddly prescient dreams your mother-in-law has. But what about the tarot cards lurking inside you, your heredity, your DNA? And aren't there other aspects of you that you never chose for yourself, but nevertheless have a heavy hand in determining the direction of your life, your family, where you're born, your gender, or your race? You might argue that those don't hold the same power as things like fate and destiny. But are you sure? We all know what happens when you try to change fate or alter the future. At least we know what happened to Oedipus the King. On this, the first episode of Cocktail Party Takeaways, I will take you on a trip to ancient Greece, to the city of Thebes, the setting of Oedipus Rex, one of the few surviving and most well-known plays by Sophocles. As I said in the intro episode last week, teaching was my second career, which I began in my mid-30s after more than a decade as a newspaper journalist. For the first few years, I felt like an imposter standing up there in front of those kids, my limited knowledge easily contained in a dorky pile of three-by-five note cards I cradled in my sweating palms. My literary lane was narrow back in the beginning, and I lived in fear of a kid asking me something I couldn't answer. Mrs. K, what exactly is blank verse? I felt a lot more comfortable in my journalism class, which I taught to mostly seniors. They began calling me Mrs. K because Kenningsmark is spelled with an O that sounds like an E, and who's got time for that? One day, this kid, a beefy fellow, slightly sleepy eyes, looks like he already knows how to tap a keg, looks at me a beat too long and says, Mrs. K, I bet you dated a lot of douches in high school. I froze and said nothing, so he continued. I mean, I bet you were pretty good looking. Want to know what offended me most? Yep, you guessed it, the were. Alrighty then. Let's begin to wrap our heads around Oedipus. Funny, he's got to know that sounds like an E in his name, too. Remember, you'll need to listen all the way to the end of the episode to get those cocktail party takeaways. For some reason, a mythmaker back in ancient Greece thought it was possible to spread a story about a Greek king who somehow manages to accidentally kill his dad and sleep with his mom. And further, let's bend our brains around this one. We, the readers, have been buying this scenario as it unfolds in the play by Sophocles as a plausible plot for more than 2,000 years. 
You know the basics of ancient Greece, right? It is the cradle of constitutional democracy, it had a commercial economy, and it developed a thriving culture, complete with events such as the first Olympics and, of course, theater. Sophocles was born in 496 BC. How do they even know that? I have no idea, but that's what Wikipedia says, so we're going with it. And his play, Oedipus Rex, was first presented on stage in 429 BC during the festival of Dionysus. Dionysus was the god of wine, so needless to say, you need to keep him happy. Oedipus Rex is the first in a trilogy of plays, followed by Oedipus at Colonus and Antigone. The Greeks, as a most civilized people, I won't say the most because I really have no idea, and on the off chance that anyone is listening, I want to avoid corrective emails as much as I can. They came up with an idea that was revolutionary in its time, that man was the center of the universe and therefore worthy of study and worthy of having plays written about him. As Greeks began to navel-gaze and think about the meaning of life, they came to see the human condition as inexorably bound up in suffering, in evil, and in death. To a poet or a playwright, this is an essential truth, and truth is inherently beautiful, even in all its brutality and fatality. Because that's what makes us human, right? The fact that we die? Professor J. Patrick Dobell, in a 2006 article, quoting some other smart guys, puts it this way. The fact that all mortals die lends human life an urgency and a nobility that no immortal can achieve. Mortals risk everything in a unique and poignant life that is too short. Only mortals can be heroes, for they alone risk death and act in the face of insurmountable odds. But what really set the Greeks apart was that they figured out that we enjoy watching this. We actually want to watch performances about pain and suffering, but not just any pain and suffering. We are talking about tragedy, and we need to define this word tragedy because it's not what you think it is. We are not talking merely super sad, the way we use the word today. It's such a tragedy he never met his father, or that awful highway accident, what a tragedy. Watching a tragedy, according to Edith Hamilton in The Greek Way, is to witness a sublime struggle, that of man against the universe. She says, the suffering of a soul that can suffer greatly, that and only that is tragedy. Aristotle, another Greek you have surely heard of, defined tragedy as having the ability to invoke two emotions, pity and awe. I'm going to cut to the chase and simplify what he meant by that. You feel pity that this terrible thing happened to this basically good and great person. And you feel awe or fear because, dang it, if it could happen to him, then it could happen to me. And we like the curious thrill of watching this. It's hard to say why, but we do. Edith Hamilton speaks of the mystery of tragic pleasure. Something else you need to know is the definition of a tragic hero. A tragic hero has to check a few boxes before he gets that dubious distinction. He has to be a he, he has to be great, like a king or something like that. He has to have a fate, like a curse or a destiny bestowed upon him by the gods. And he has to have a flaw, a fatal one, that makes him vulnerable to falling down the rabbit hole of said destiny. Often this flaw is hubris, an excess of presumption. 
meaning you think you have accomplished something pretty impossible, but in fact you have not. Oedipus the King is the OG of tragic heroes. He is a guy, and he is a king, so that's two, but he is also born with a terrible, awful, no good, very bad fate that has been assigned to him by the gods because, well, we have no idea why. And for box number four, he's got a couple of character flaws that make him ripe for the smiting. Now, when thousands of Greeks at the wild party that is the festival of Dionysus grabbed a mug of watered-down wine and popped a squat on a stone bleacher in an open-air amphitheater to watch this play, they would have already known the tragic story of Oedipus Rex. That didn't spoil anything. On the contrary, it was watching Oedipus not know what they, the audience, did know that made the play so intense to watch. Okay, class, what do we call it when the audience knows something that the characters on stage do not? Dramatic irony. So let me catch you up on the plot. Once upon a time in the kingdom of Thebes, a king and a queen had a baby. And when he was born, instead of getting silver rattles and monogram burp cloths, they got a horrific prophecy. This little baby was doomed to kill his father, King Laius, and have sex with, and kids with, his mother, Queen Jocasta. Huh. Um, no thanks. Can you flip that magic eight ball again and see if we can get something better? No? So what do Laius and Jocasta do? What any reasonable new parents would. They pin the baby's feet together, hand him to a servant, and direct said servant to take the baby to Mount Cathiron and leave him there to die. Apparently, death by exposure was the usual method of killing unwanted infants back in the day. That's all I got on that one. So the servant does as he is told. Except, except, while he is on his unsavory errand, he meets a shepherd from the nearby city of Corinth. And this guy's like, so what are you doing with that baby there, partner? And the Thebes guy's like, well, I'm just going to leave it here because I have no power and no say, and I'll probably be killed if I don't, so yeah. And the shepherd says, you know, the king and queen of Corinth can't have kids, so why don't we solve a bunch of problems and you give me the baby? That sounded reasonable, so the Thebes guy gives the baby to the Corinth guy. The baby is raised in Corinth as the son of Polybus and Merope, who name him Oedipus, which means wounded foot. Time hop, 18 years. There's a feast. And like at every feast, there's a drunk guy. Let's read how Oedipus himself recalls this. At a feast, a drunken man, maundering in his cups, cries out that I am not my father's son. That word maundering, we totally need to bring that back. That is a fantastic word. Can't you just see it? This guy with his toga askew, elbows on the table, looks up from a big old sloshy metal goblet, wipes some goat meat off his beard and slurs, Yo, Ed, you mind if I call you that? I got a secret. Your parents. Not your parents. Oedipus is stunned, but his parents brush it off as the slanderous rant of a fool. Oedipus is not so sure, so he goes to the Magic 8-Ball, uh, I mean, the Oracle at Delphi, and asks point blank, Am I adopted? The Oracle doesn't answer that question, Natch, but instead issues a terrible, awful, no good, very bad prophecy, which will sound familiar. You will kill your father and have sex with your mother. And yes, there will be kids. 
Huh. Um, no thanks. I heard all this and fled, Oedipus says. And from that day, Corinth to me was only in the stars, descending in that quarter of the sky as I wandered farther and farther on my way to a land where I should never see the evil sung by the oracle. So as he is traveling along some dusty Greek byway, he encounters a group of men, one in a chariot-like ride. And this entourage is like, push over, we are coming through. And Oedipus is like, screw you, and hits one of them. I'm thinking he pops them in the jaw as they pass by. The chariot guy takes out a stick with a double goad, which sounds pretty nasty, honestly, and hits Oedipus. I guess Oedipus saw that as a cheap shot, or he was still mad about the oracle, or maybe he has some anger issues, fatal flaw perhaps? Because what happens next is what I like to call the world's first incident of deadly road rage. Oedipus takes the club he happens to be carrying and swings it around and attacks Hulk style. I killed him. I killed them all, he says. Okay. So anywho, he keeps on trucking down the road and winds up at the entrance of Thebes. And who is there to greet him but a disgusting monster called the Sphinx? Lady head, lion body, wings, super cranky. And she has been sitting there menacing the people of Thebes for some time. She has this riddle, and if you get it wrong, she flings you to your death. I know, you have questions. I don't know why they don't just leave her alone and not speak to her. Surely there's a reason. Oedipus, emboldened perhaps by his recent successful killing spree, just approaches her and is like, well, hey, sup? And she is like, solve my riddle or die. So here's the riddle. What walks on four legs in the morning, two legs in the afternoon, and three legs in the evening? And Oedipus is like, yeah, duh, that's man. That was the sound of La Sphinx tossing herself off a cliff to her death. So Oedipus strolls into town and lets someone know that he has gotten rid of their little pest problem. And they are all like, all hail Oedipus. We just happen to have a vacancy in our king department. Our guy got killed. Want to be king? There's a kingdom and a palace. Oh, and a queen. Her name is Jocasta. It's all coming together for you now, isn't it? But not for poor Oedipus, who thinks his life has turned out pretty great, no thanks to the gods and their dumb predictions. So he marries Jocasta. They have kids, four of them, and many years later, another round of bad luck hits the city, a plague. And that is actually where the play Oedipus the King begins. Thebes is tossed on a murdering sea and cannot lift her head from the death surge, says a priest, explaining the people's suffering to Oedipus. You are not one of the immortal gods, we know. Yet we have come to you to make our prayer as the man surest in mortal ways. You saved us from the Sphinx, that flinty singer. When your years of kingship are remembered, let them not say we rose but later fell. Keep the state from going down in the storm. Then Oedipus himself utters this nugget of dramatic irony. Poor children, he says, I know that you are deathly sick, and yet, sick as you are, not one of you is as sick as I. Facts, Oedipus. By committing incest and murder, 
he has, according to the Greeks, violated natural law as well as human law and has essentially polluted himself and all who are near him. Hey, I don't make the laws. I'm just reporting them. He is simply saying he is a good and empathetic king who feels all their pain, but the audience has their first satisfying cringe moment. Oh man, dude, you are sick. So then Oedipus explains to everyone that he has sent his brother-in-law, Jocasta's brother, which also means he's what, people? Oedipus's uncle, to the oracle to see what's what. But Creon is late, or so Oedipus says. He has overstayed his time. What is he doing? He has been gone too long. Temper, temper, Oedipus. Creon shows up and reports that the oracle says that until the city solves the cold case of who murdered the former king, Laius, the plague will continue to ravage Thebes. Oedipus gets his back up again, and he's like, why didn't you guys deal with that? And Creon's all, well, I mean, we had that whole Sphinx thing happening, and then you came to town, and I guess we just kind of forgot. And Oedipus is like, that is so uncool. Well, since I am great and smart and constantly reminding you how I solved that riddle, I will solve this murder because whoever killed King Laius might, who knows, decide at any moment to kill me as well. Cringe alert. He then issues a series of decrees about banishing the murderer once found, etc., etc., because for heaven's sake, a noble king has been destroyed. Now I, having the power he held, before me, having his bed, begetting children there, upon his wife, as he would have had he lived, their son would have been my children's brother. Ew, ew, ew. Okay, let's stay focused here. Summoned to help with this murder mystery is Tiresias, the blind seer. Get it? Oh, the irony. He is summoned to help out. Oedipus really talks this guy up as he appears, calling him holy and the one man in whom truth was born. We are in your hands, he says respectfully. And what does Tiresias say? Sometimes the truth really helps not at all, brother. And this is one of those times I should not have come. And Oedipus cranks up the angry again. Um, what? So are you some kind of traitor? Temper, temper, king, Tiresias says. No matter how much you yell and stamp your feet, my lips are sealed. And Oedipus screams, what a wicked old man you are. You try a stone's patience. So this escalates until finally Tiresias comes out with it. You are the pollution of this country. I say that you are the murderer whom you seek. Well, it can't get much clearer than that. Who knew this was a one-act play? But no, Oedipus is not buying it. He makes a 180-degree opinion pivot and starts tearing down the seer. He calls him a sightless, witless, senseless, mad old man, a fraud, and even makes fun of his blindness, calling him a child of endless night. Then he accuses him of being in cahoots with his brother-in-law, Creon, whom he now thinks is trying to usurp the throne. This all despite the fact that Tiresias lays it out for Oedipus in painfully clear detail. You live in hideous shame with those most dear to you. You, with both your eyes, are blind. You cannot see the wretchedness of your life, nor in whose house you live, nor with whom. Who are your father and mother? Can you tell me? Before leaving, he says, this day will give you a father and break your heart. 
So at this point, the Greek chorus, which basically represents the citizens of Thebes, is a little freaked out that Oedipus is harshing on an important prophet. They sing something to the effect of, um, I guess the king was just super angry when he said all that stuff about Tiresias. Creon comes back, and he and Oedipus have it out, with Oedipus accusing him of trying to dethrone him. And Creon is all, yeah, let's think through that one for a sec. As the queen's brother, I get to have everything you do, all the luxuries and honors, but I don't stay up at night worrying about plagues and unsolved murders. So why exactly would I want your job? Jocasta comes out and is like, what's all the yelling? And Oedipus explains about Tiresias and his wild accusations. And she says, oh, don't pay attention to those prophets. They are often wrong. Like one time, me and Laius had this crazy prophecy that our son would kill his father. But we threw that demon spawn away after we pinned his ankles together. He's long dead and had nothing to do with Laius's death on that highway where three roads meet. And Oedipus is like, um, wait a sec. What was that about three roads? That's right. He doesn't say, oh, crap, that's the same prophecy I got. He just focuses on the detail about where Laius was killed. She describes the place, and he is like, yep, that sounds like where I killed that group of men. And he asks, what did Laius look like? And Jocasta says, wait for it, actually, he looked a lot like you. Yeah, nothing. They are not getting it. Oedipus has a sneaking suspicion he did in fact murder the king, but he still has no idea it might be his dad. However, there's still hope he is innocent. There's one detail from the original account of the murder that would exonerate him if true. The lone survivor of the attack came back and said a group of robbers killed the king and his men, not just one man. Oedipus asks Jocasta if this survivor is still around, and Jocasta is like, sure, but he is sort of far away. He asked to be reassigned when he came back and saw you on the throne. Again, crickets. Neither of them is catching on that maybe this poor servant saw Oedipus and knew he had to keep his mouth shut, so he made up a story about a band of robbers and hightailed it to greener pastures. So Oedipus says, let's get this guy back here. He will help us solve this mystery. Okay, so keep in mind, this guy could indict Oedipus if he tells the truth, and Oedipus still wants him to come and testify. That is brave, bold, and beyond the call of duty for an all-powerful Greek king. After all, look how Jocasta reacts. Well, he can't recant his story now. Who cares what he says now? Spoken like a true lawyer. Oedipus then explains to Jocasta his life story. Why they have been married for years and she doesn't know it, I can't tell you. Maybe pillow talk wasn't a thing back then. He tells her how he left Corinth because of a terrible prophecy that he would kill his father and sleep with his mother, and how while he was traveling, he came upon a bunch of guys and killed them. And still, still, neither of them put two and two together. Next on the scene is a messenger from Corinth who says that Polybus, the king of Corinth, is dead. And Jocasta is like, ha, see? Oh, Riddlers of God's will, where are you now? And the messenger is like, what's going on? And Jocasta explains, that Oedipus was fated to kill his dad, but Polybus died of natural causes. And the messenger is like, oh, so you don't know that Polybus is not your real dad? And then he proceeds to explain that he was the shepherd to whom the Theban servant 
gave the doomed baby. He even reminds Oedipus about his wounded feet, still scarred from being pinned together as a baby. So this is when Jocasta, but not Oedipus, finally catches on. And she says, forget this herdsman, forget it all. This talk is a waste of time. And Oedipus is like, woman, I need truth. I need to know who I am. And he says, how could I wish that I were someone else? How could I not be glad to know my birth? Man, that is so timeless, that quintessential human need to know, to know all, especially when it comes to our own identities. Jocasta exits, saying, ah, miserable, that is the only word I have for you now. That is the only word I can ever have. And this is the last time we will see Jocasta on stage. And so we arrive at the climax, the scene of greatest suspense and tension, the point of no return. The shepherd, who has played two crucial roles in Oedipus's life, is summoned to the stage. This is the shepherd who, instead of killing Oedipus as a baby, hands him to the Corinthian. And this is the same shepherd who then witnesses said baby, all grown up and armed with a club, murder his kinsman and his king. So this shepherd slinks on stage, basically dragged there. Oedipus proceeds to bully him, threatening him with bodily harm and even death until the shepherd finally utters the awful truth and calls Oedipus the most wretched of all living men. Oedipus says, O light, may I look on you for the last time. I, Oedipus, damned in his birth, in his marriage damned, damned in the blood he shed with his own hand. He exits, and a messenger appears on stage and describes a gruesome scene. Jocasta has hung herself, and Oedipus, on finding her, seizes the large pins she wears to keep her gown in place and plunges them into both of his eyes. Blood is soaking his beard and running all over the place. It's tough reading. He struck his eyes not once but many times, and the blood spattered his beard, bursting from his ruined sockets like red hail. All of this takes place off stage, and there are probably a couple of reasons for this, but the most practical is that it would have been hard to pull off in front of an audience. When all is finally revealed and the truth is exposed, does Oedipus run and hide? No. Does he lie? No. Does he murder everyone who knows the truth? No. A messenger delivers Oedipus's achingly poignant public request. He is calling for someone to lead him to the gates so that all the children of Cadmos may look upon his father's murderer, his mother's, no, I can't say it, and then he will leave Thebes, self-exiled, in order that the curse, which he himself pronounced, may depart from the house. Look, you will see a thing that would crush a heart of stone. Oedipus, defeated by fate, mastered by seemingly unfeeling gods, then says to all who will hear, all the while this evil was cancerous within me, for I am sick in my daily life, sick in my origin. I alone can bear this guilt.
classic tragedy is complete. A great man, but not a perfect man, brought low by a fate that could not be outrun or outwitted. It is easy to see that Oedipus is indeed in a state of sublime suffering. So let me walk you through the usual line of questioning that happens in a classroom at the end of this play. What if no one had tried to outwit fate? Is Oedipus to blame for what happened? Is someone else to blame? Does his self-inflicted punishment fit the crime? Or was Oedipus a blameless puppet of the gods? Ask yourself this. At what point does Oedipus make his own choices? What events in this play were not predicted ahead of time? When you look at it closely, you see that the gods are not the only ones making bad things happen. So the conversation inevitably boils down to a debate over fate versus free will. Did Oedipus even have free will? More importantly, do we? Some years ago, I came across a discussion between Neil deGrasse Tyson and Sam Harris on Tyson's podcast, Star Talk. They presented some compelling evidence for our lack of free will. You can't think a thought before you think it, and headache-inducing stuff like that. But where it got really interesting in terms of Oedipus was when they talked about the moral and ethical implications of humans not having free will. No one picked their parents, one of the guests said, and Hitler didn't make himself. At no point does he magically become culpable for everything. At no point does Hitler become the author of himself. Then they talked about Charles Whitman, the Texas Tower sniper, who killed more than a dozen people from an observation deck at the University of Texas in Austin. In his suicide note, he claimed a brain tumor made him do it, calling himself a victim of his own biology. So let's think about how we can relate that to Oedipus. Perhaps the tumor is a metaphor for the why. Why are you evil? Why have you done what you have done? Charles Whitman seems to be implying that he didn't really want to kill all those people. And certainly Oedipus was loud and clear in word and in deed in his desire to avoid his terrible fate. So why does he kill his father and marry his mother? Because of his tumor, which in this case is a prophecy. However, there are plenty of events in this play that are not foretold or directed by the gods, like Laius and Jocasta trying to kill Oedipus, and Oedipus trying to run away from his fate, and Jocasta killing herself, and Oedipus blinding himself. The Star Talk podcast addresses this as well. Yes, we are dealt a hand of cards, but we have choices about how we play the cards we are given, and that is the essence of our humanity. Sigmund Freud who named his signature ideas about psychosexual development after the basic events of this play, gets in on the free will action. According to Freud, all boys direct their first sexual impulses towards their mothers and in turn feel jealous hatred for their fathers. Most men, unlike Oedipus, succeed in conquering these urges. But poor King O makes his dreams become reality. So this play serves as a kind of warning don't be so sure you have mastered your own destiny that you are in complete control. Oedipus thought he was. Moreover, our repression of any memory of those childhood desires is a form of willful ignorance, similar to Oedipus's stubborn blindness to the truth throughout much of the play. After all, denial is not just a river in Egypt. Which brings me to another rabbit hole I found myself falling down several years ago. 
I was in my kitchen cooking dinner on a Sunday evening, listening to the TED Radio Hour. Guy Raz was talking to researcher Brene Brown about vulnerability and shame. Here are some of the things she said. Vulnerability is not weakness. It is emotional risk, exposure, and uncertainty, but it is also our most accurate measure of courage. Vulnerable suddenly seemed the perfect word to epitomize Oedipus's pitiful predicament and his heroism. The word vulnerable actually comes from the Latin word for wound or to wound or to be capable of being wounded. Remember, Oedipus's name means wounded foot. How did Oedipus's parents try to get rid of their fated son? By leaving him exposed on the wild hills of Cithiron. He begins his life acutely vulnerable, and in some ways, recognizing and embracing that vulnerability, and in turn his true identity, becomes his life's work, whether he knows it or not. When you think about it, dramatic irony is vulnerability. The character on the stage is vulnerable, exposed to damage by his own ignorance of his situation. So while it's cringy and mildly amusing, watching Oedipus flail around and try to find the nose that is on his face, it's also horrifically riveting to watch someone expose themselves more and more to catastrophe. And he does so knowing he is running a risk. He says time and again that he must know the truth. Look at his relentless questioning of the shepherd at the end. Ah, I am on the brink of dreadful speech, the shepherd says. And Oedipus responds, an eye of dreadful hearing, yet I must hear. Oedipus is Teddy Roosevelt's man in the arena, whose face is marred with dust and sweat, and win or lose, he does so daring greatly. What a contrast to Joe Costa, who tries to bury the truth, and when it is exposed, dies a shameful death. Brene Brown also talked about shame, citing the Jungian description of it as the swampland of the soul. It thrives on secrecy, silence, and judgment, she said. It's that little voice in your head that tells you you're not good enough. And if you get past that one, it whispers, who do you think you are? Greeks were profoundly shame-averse and would do anything to avoid it. At the end of the play, Oedipus is awash in shame, but he doesn't set up a home in that swamp. He does not scurry away in secret, and he is not silent. This play, at its most powerful, is not about whether we have free will. It is about why Oedipus is a tragic hero. In his moment of total shame and utter defeat, he exposes himself, throws open the doors of the palace, and says, I did this. It was my mistake. I will pay for it. Now, you could argue that he does this to lift the plague and save the city, and that is heroic. But I would argue that in doing so, he also becomes fully human, and that is why, in the end, he is a most admirable man. And aren't we all blind in some ways to the full reality of life? Don't we all live in a world of appearances? Man's own wits and power can only take him so far. Destiny cannot be altered. Ignoring your own powerlessness is a form of hubris. Facing shame but not wallowing in it is noble. The final devastating speech in the play comes from a member of the chorus. It thrums with Aristotle's pity and fear and serves as a warning to all of us who think we are hashtag blessed. This is the king 
who solved the famous riddle and towered up most powerful of men. No mortal eyes but looked on him with envy, yet in the end ruin swept over him. Let every man in mankind's frailty consider his last day, and let none presume on his good fortune until he find life at his death a memory without pain. Consider those final lines, your first sip of the cocktail party takeaway. Okay, so let's have a round of those cocktail party takeaways. The first one is the word maundering. Remember the drunk guy maundering in his cups who tells Oedipus he was adopted? This is a fantastic word. It means to grumble or to speak indistinctly. The second one is the Greek concept of tragedy, not our current broad usage that means really sad, but instead a specific kind of story about a specific kind of hero who taps into our emotional wells of pity and fear. The third takeaway is my bringing to bear on Oedipus Rex, Brene Brown's research on vulnerability and shame. Oedipus is a tragic hero because he allows himself to be vulnerable. He faces his shame, something Greeks tried to avoid at all costs, and as a result, comes into his full and heroic humanity. Doomed but still trying, going down swinging. He ends the play miserably, but we the viewers experience catharsis and a certain satisfaction, that thing Edith Hamilton calls the mystery of tragic pleasure. This is not the same as schadenfreude. You are not glad someone is suffering. It is quite the opposite, really. And finally, my gift to you. Go online and look up the 1957 Oedipus Rex movie produced by the BBC. Now, don't watch the whole thing. You'd be better off watching Grass Grow or C-SPAN. There are three things of note here. First, find the scene with Tiresias, because he is, in this production, a dead ringer for the winter warlock from the old Christmas special, Santa Claus is Coming to Town. Next, fast forward to two places, the 45-minute mark to see Oedipus telling his road rage story, and the one-hour mark for the moment when he learns the whole truth. Trust me, and you're welcome. Remember how I leveled the takeaways in the intro, depending on the kind of party you're attending? I invite you, the listeners, to give it a try. Maybe you thought other parts of this podcast were better takeaways than the ones I came up with. I welcome any and all suggestions. Please subscribe to Cocktail Party Takeaways on your platform of choice and tell a friend. And let's get social. Follow me on Twitter at AnnRochelle67. That's A-N-N-E-R-O-C-H-E-L-L 67. For more information about me or about the podcast, go to www.annrochelle.com. Cocktail Party Takeaways is produced by Gus Kenigsmark. Original music by Gus Kenigsmark. Cover art by Stuart Key.